previously on Finding Tammy Jo. I knew she ran away. I ran away several times, but I didn't know that she traveled outside of our comfort zone. We did a lot of crazy things, you know, ditching school, and I think it just escalated. You know, it wasn't all that peachy. It sounds like, oh, we had this great old time. To me, it wasn't a great old time. You know, maybe it was to her. It was freedom for her. To me, I missed my mom. (laughs) You know, I really did. The last thing I remember is, you know, she walks up to the condo door. The door opens. You can't see anybody. And then she walks in and maybe gives me a little wave and the door closes. I'm Veronica Volk with WXXI News. And I'm Gary Craig with the Democrat and Chronicle. And this is Finding Tammy Joe, the podcast. Today, we have a pretty difficult task. We're going to try to talk through some of the few remaining questions in this case. The good news is we have some new information that maybe some of you haven't heard before. The bad news is these questions don't have totally satisfying answers. But... If they did, this probably wouldn't still be an open investigation. So back when she was still Callie Doe, the girl was buried in Greenmont Cemetery in Dansville, New York, beneath a headstone that read, Lest We Forget, Unidentified Girl. Once she was identified as Tammy Joe Alexander, her sister, Pamela Dyson, wanted to keep Tammy where she was. I just felt like she was showed so much love and affection up there. She didn't get that down here. And when I saw where she's at, you couldn't ask for a more beautiful place. It's, I don't know, it was fitting like a fairy tale. Tammy's headstone was updated with her name and picture, and the Livingston County Sheriff's Office held a memorial service for her in June of last year, 2015. The media was invited to attend, which is how I found myself on a bus on my way to the cemetery with people who had been following this case for decades. Yeah, I thought that was you. Hi, good, how are you? I This is Faith Englert, Charles St. George, and Deb DuPont. Deb tells me she actually x-rayed Tammy the day she was found, back when she was still Callie Doe. When they found her, they brought her to Noise Hospital and I was a young x-ray tech at the time, and they they brought her right up to the x-ray department. And so I feel very close to the situation, being that I've known her since she died. I guess what bothered me most was that nobody ever reported her missing. This is Faith. You know, were it my child, I'd comb the ends of the earth. But years ago, people, girls would disappear, you know, and yeah. they'd get in trouble and they'd say, oh, what, whatever happened to Barbara? Oh, she's down with her Aunt Susan in Florida. Yeah. And this is Charles. When in fact she was down there because she'd gotten pregnant or whatever. So in those days, there was a little hooded secrecy. This is the first major question remaining in this investigation. And you really can't talk about the case without it coming up. Why wasn't there a missing persons report for Tammy Joe Alexander? Sometimes this question manifests itself in confusion or anger towards Tammy's family. Like when I spoke with this woman, Joanne, at the service. I'm a mother. I would have been, I can't believe somebody didn't miss that young lady. 
and it's just a very sad thing that a parent could lose a child and not want to know where they are. The service was somber. Members of Tammy's family spoke, including her sister. This is just a portion of her remarks. Please remember it was 1979. That was a different era with different circumstances. Kids ran away and they came home safe. None of us knew or imagined the horror Tammy might meet. I never for a moment thought my sister could be deceased. In my mind, she was living happily somewhere with a man she loved and children she doted on. Tammy's cousin, Haley Pete, also spoke at the memorial service. She wasn't born until after Tammy disappeared and says she only ever got to know her cousin through the stories she grew up hearing. But in those stories, Tammy was still presumed to be alive. I know it is hard to understand how we didn't find her all these years with internet and DNA. So many people have said so many truly hateful things. However, I would like to put it into perspective. We were not looking for a deceased child. We were looking to reunite with a grown, vibrant woman that escaped a dark place. We were looking for Tammy, alive and well. I have literally looked for her everywhere. I have even, I, everywhere I have ever been, every town, city, state that I have ever visited since I was big enough to look, even if I had been there before. I have paid for address lookups, looked in phone books and searched the internet when it came available. I even called phone numbers for Tammy Alexander around the U.S. to see if it was her. See, I was looking for Tammy alive. I never once thought to look for her any other way. I just could not imagine the person I had always been told about could be anything but alive. Then last year, all this changed. I wanted to meet her. So though, I'm grateful that our Tammy had your town to treat her so well, and I'm sorry that it created such a delay in finding out who did this to her and why. I am grateful for the time that Tammy was alive to me. Now I am grateful that Callie Doe has her name, and I am accepting that now our Tammy isn't coming home. Since Tammy's mother is no longer alive, we can't ask her about this part. But Pamela says she thinks she knows what might have happened, and we'll let her explain. When Tammy and Laura had run away, they were put on probation. Um, and my thought now is that my mom probably reached out to her probation officer and said, hey, she's gone again. And back in those days, I feel like as much as she ran away, that was probably the step that my mama took to let them know she was gone. I knew she had gone, but as far as where she went, just like, every, well, she'll be back, or they'll find her and bring her home. At first I thought, well, when she gets 18, she's going to show back up. Well, she didn't show back up at 18. So I thought, you know, if she started a life somewhere else, you know, just like movies you see on TV, you go away, you start a life, you have a husband and children, and you don't want to tell them. You may want to see your family, but you don't want to tell them. And in my eyes, I thought the law was looking for her. If they can't find her, then I sure can't find her. It's not like everybody just forgot about her, because we did. We did talk about her. We did think about her. And my mom grieved 
Even though she was a mean person, she grieved Tammy. She loved Tammy, and I really don't think that she wouldn't try to do what was right to try to find Tammy. What happened in 1979, and whether a missing person report was filed or not, may always be a mystery. But for investigators, there was a sense of both relief and joy that Callie Doe now had a name, Tammy Jo Alexander. For Livingston County Sheriff's Investigator Brad Schneider in particular, the day he received the news of a likely DNA match with Callie Doe and Tammy Jo is not one he will forget. He'd become the lead investigator in the case in early 2014. That was only a year before the identification. I was almost speechless. I, I was still on the phone with Hernando County because they had the, the initial um, word from the University of North Texas that we had a, a possible match. And I was almost running down the hall to come and tell my captain. And then he just about jumped out of his chair. And then we went down and we told the sheriff. And he, the look on his face was priceless. He, he, we were all just totally amazed that we finally got over a huge hurdle in this case. Um, so it, it was, I hate to say it, but it was one of those things that, you know, I never thought that I would be the person involved in the case when we were finally able to put a name to her. But by itself, the identification could not bring closure. Her name alone could not resolve the still unanswered questions. Who killed her? Why did he kill her? How did a Florida teenager end up murdered in western New York? Did she know her killer? Was he a friend or perhaps a stranger whom she'd met hitchhiking? For police, these questions now had new life. The identification gave a new spark to the investigation, opening up new avenues to explore. Part of trying to figure out who committed a crime is knowing your victim. And when you don't know your victim, how, your, your suspect pool is endless at that point. When you are able to identify her, then we're able to focus in on her. We know who she is. We can find out who her family is. We can find out what her lifestyle was. You know, fr family, friends, enemies. You know, we can start at that point to now focus our investigation. Greg McCrary is a retired FBI crime profiler, now a consultant and expert witness in violent crime cases. McCrary says there's a certain science to figuring out just how vulnerable a person is to crime, what he calls victimology. So victimology is a very uh, uh, important part. Studying the victim, understanding the victim, uh, is a really a very important part of each, uh, each homicide investigation. And the purpose uh, is to put the victim on a risk continuum from low to moderate to high. And we do that by looking at two sets of variables, uh, lifestyle variables and situational variables. Tammy frequently tried to escape a troubled home, which put her relatively high up on the victimology scale. Most often, people are killed by people that they know. Now, in this case, in, in hindsight, once we got her identified, she seemed to be a little bit more of a high-risk victim if she was hitchhiking places and that sort of thing. I mean, that would be an avenue worth exploring if she had just run off on her own and been hitchhiking and encountered somebody. FBI Special Agent Lynn Opanishuk agrees. Beginning in 2010, he worked with the Livingston County Sheriff's Office on the Calido case. She certainly had some habits that made her vulnerable. She had uh, 
a history of running away from home, even if it was for short distances. Um, you know, we do know that she hitchhiked frequently and, you know, she liked to ride with truckers, which is one of the things that we considered um, and one of the things that we're taking a hard look at. Opanishak has now moved on to the Behavioral Science Unit, but he was still on the job in western New York when Callie Doe was identified. I guess in my personal opinion, I was a little surprised that there was just no indication of who she was until until this year. I mean, it just, uh, that was a little shocking to me. But once Callie Doe was known, her past became clearer. Her sister Pamela gave investigators some insight into the chaos of the home where Tammy Jo lived. Tammy Jo's high school friend, Laurel Nowell, told of the cross-country hitchhiking trip the two took when they were only 15. And in one of the Otter recollections, a former boyfriend told of what he said was the last time he saw Tammy Jo. She was then staying at what appeared to be a condo in St. Petersburg, Florida. The boyfriend, Kevin Williams, did not know why she was there, but later that year, she disappeared. Schneider and the FBI have tried to prod Kevin into specific memories of the condo's location, but they've had no luck. We offered to sit down in front of Google Earth with him, and we offered to take him back. You know, come on, we'll drive so you don't have to use your gas. Let's go. Um, we offered to do all this stuff, and the same as he told you guys, yeah, I, I don't remember where it was. But Kevin was helpful in other ways. I mean, he was willing to talk to us. Um, we had a long discussion. It sounds like he was one of the closest people in, in Tammy Joe's life before she goes missing and, and is ultimately killed. Um, so he's been able to help put some pieces together. He had correspondence from Tammy Joe that helped investigators build a partial timeline of her whereabouts. Those letters opened up another mystery. Tammy Joe sent the letters to Kevin from a place called the Rainbow Prison Ministries, a ministry based in the rolling mountains of northern Georgia. A minister known for his healing church services visited parolees before their release from jail. He also may have allowed some to stay on his Georgia property once they were free. For investigators, this lead seemed remarkably promising. Somehow Tammy Jo, when only 15 years old, had ended up at this ministry, and she may well have been among paroled felons. But to this day, the Rainbow Prison Ministries has been a dead end. Investigators know very little about the ministry and nothing about why Tammy Jo was there. We can confirm that it actually existed. We can confirm that, you know, what they did, and that was they would go to the, the different prisons and basically uh, you know, try and help them, uh, you know, find God and things of that nature to help them when they were released from prison. So we're able to track that end of it, but we're not able to track Tammy Joe's affiliation with it. We're not able to track, you know, officially when she was there, why she was there, or anything, you know, really tying her to it other than we know she was there and we know that it existed. The FBI in Georgia has also tried to unearth information about the ministry. Lynn Opanishuk again. We, we really don't know uh, a lot about that. The Rainbow Ministries, the, the two people that ran it are deceased. Their son is deceased. You might remember from some of our past episodes that Tammy was wearing this distinctive red jacket and that John York, the now retired sheriff of Livingston County, spent all this time trying to track down the history of the jacket. 
Unfortunately, thousands had been manufactured. But years later, the FBI was able to use modern technology to find DNA on the jacket. The DNA they found came from a man. And the Livingston County Sheriff's Office has gotten swabs from three different men to compare to that profile. Schneider didn't want to say who they were, but Kevin told us he's one of the men being tested. There's a problem, though. See, in 1979, evidence wasn't handled like it is now. They weren't even using DNA profiles in criminal cases back then. So law enforcement didn't think to preserve evidence that way. They didn't handle it with this meticulous care and caution. It's not that big of a leap to think that there could have been some DNA transfer from a cop who was handling the jacket without gloves, for example. So whatever DNA is on the jacket could possibly come from one of the three men being tested or from any of the cops who handled the jacket over the last 36 years. If one of these samples that we submitted comes back to a match to these unknown profiles that we have on file, jackpot. You know, we, we were, we're in the right direction. If they come back with no match, you know, again, it, it could very easily be those samples could be ruled out by getting a control sample from all law enforcement that's ever been involved in this case. But there again, very time consuming, both for us to acquire those and for the lab to test them against those profiles. You know, um, they very well could be the killer. They very well could be somebody in law enforcement. The FBI is conducting those tests and the sheriff's office is waiting for results, but that's all they have. None of Tammy's clothes or jewelry or even her body had any other forensic evidence that could possibly connect the girl to her killer. You know, whoever did this um, definitely did not want to be traced in any way. You know, there was very little at the scene other than her and her clothes and, you know, the, the couple pieces of jewelry that she was wearing, nothing more. So whoever did this, you know, was very methodical in the way that they did this to, to not leave any tracks. But physical clues aren't their only hope. And while they wait for those DNA results, investigators in New York and in Florida and in Georgia continue to comb through records and conduct interviews. In his years with the FBI, Greg McCrary investigated plenty of cold cases like this one. And he says that while the years can take their toll on evidence, they can also open up new channels. You know, this is the classic cold case kind of homicide. And, and the key there is you look for solvability factors. And, you know, it's tough when you have a victim like this who we don't really know exactly how she got up there and, you know, you know, what, you know what's going on. But nonetheless, uh, if you start doing interviews, you know, what, what, you find, what I find interesting in these cases many times is if you can develop suspects or people around or somebody that might have known her or, or whatever, people's relationship changes over time. And there may be somebody that knows something that was protecting somebody early on. And if this gets out as it is in the news and you generate more public interest in it, sometimes you get people who come forward who are now willing to talk who 10, 20, 30 years ago were not willing to talk. This is Gary Craig with the Democrat in Chronicle.
And I'm Veronica Volk with WXXI News. This is the part where I ask you to subscribe to our show, wherever you get your podcasts, and come to our live event. But really, if you're in the Rochester area, we'd really love to see you and to have you involved in this thing we're doing. We're taping the last episode of Finding Tammy Joe live at the Little Theater. We're going to play some tape we haven't gotten to, we're going to have a couple of live interviews, and we'll take your questions. Then we'll release the show as its own podcast that you can find in all your Tammy Joe feeds. More info on our website, findingtammyjoe.com. And as always, thank you for listening.